As you know, there are signs everywhere pointing to the fact that Jesus' return for his church is near. Reminds me of a story I read about a prophecy conference held in Orlando, Florida. One of the speakers was a man named uh, Albert Peak from Abilene, Texas. And he'd been teaching and speaking of Bible prophecy over 60 years. And his topic was our topic this morning, the signs of the times. And he began by saying, I began preaching on this sign 60, uh, the sign 60 years ago when there are very few that you could actually see. Today they are everywhere. I'm no longer, no longer looking for signs. I'm listening for sounds. And we know that's linked to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And those words do bring comfort to us as we've looked at this series all along. Well, sometime, right either right after the rapture or a little time, a short amount of time after it, there is what we know is going to be called the, the seven-year Great Tribulation period. Now, last Sunday we left off with right after the rapture and what the world would be like right before and right after the rapture of the church. We're going to continue with that main theme here and, and see the signs that Jesus would say would mark his return. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning when it comes to Jesus' return. Number one, the concerns. Number two, the conditions. And we'll close with number three, the comparisons. But first, the concern. Now, Jesus had just lamented in Matthew chapter 23 over Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 37 of chapter 23, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. What Jesus meant by that is because of their rejection of him as a Messiah, that temple and their nation would be destroyed. Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. And he says, your house is going to be left to you desolate. And then in chapter 24, verse 2, as they're passing by the temple and the disciples are commenting on how beautiful it is, Jesus says this, Do you not see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in 70 A.D., 40 years, less than 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, the Roman soldiers stormed Jerusalem, and although Titus commanded them not to, to desecrate or harm the temple, one of them uh, threw a torch in there, lit it up. The fire became so hot that the, the golden side began to melt and run down into the cracks in the walls and between the rocks. And when it was cooled and solidified, the Roman soldiers were then ordered to pull down every stone of the temple in order to get the gold out. And they didn't quit until they had managed to pull down every single stone there, uh, just as Jesus said that not one stone should be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. It happened just as Jesus said it would happen. Whatever Jesus says is going to happen is, will happen. <laughs> and so we need to know that. So now look at verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Three questions they asked Jesus. When? When will these things be? What? What will be the sign of your coming 
And what again, what will be the sign of the end of the age? When will the destruction of this temple take place? When will there not be one stone left upon another? But what they really wanted to know is when Jesus would establish his kingdom. And most importantly, they wanted to know what positions they would have in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, that's what we were really asking. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 19 and 11, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. In their minds, they thought Christ was going to rule, begin his rule and reign right then and there. They had not figured on the cross. They had not figured on a suffering Messiah, the crucifixion or his resurrection from his dead or his departure or his return to this earth. So they were on their tiptoes waiting for something to happen for Jesus to establish his kingdom right then and there. They had no idea that there'd be this gap of years or that this time period would last, that Jesus would come again and die for the sins of the world. So they asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, I admit some of these verses are a little bit challenging, but they fit right into our end times uh, series because it's unclear whether Jesus is describing what's going to happen during the seven-year Great Tribulation period or is Jesus describing the general signs that will be happening in the world leading up to and intensifying towards the great time of the Great Tribulation? I prefer the latter. That Jesus is describing general signs that will be happening in this world and will intensify as they lead into the time of the Great Tribulation. Because we're seeing these same signs today. So the disciples asked Jesus, uh, what will be the sign of your coming? And then Jesus answered them, and that brings us to point number two, the conditions. What are the signs? What will be the conditions of the world when Jesus is about to return? Well, the first thing that Jesus warns us about is that there will be a world full of deception. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You know, the Antichrist is going to be one of those. We need to know, though, that Satan is the one behind this deception that really goes on in our world today. We know that the Bible says Satan is the father of lies, and since the very beginning of human history, one of his primary weapons against humanity has been deceit. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, John describes him like this, the great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. Jesus said this about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Listen, our world today is being set up for the great deception that will happen in these last days. This great deception is associated with the satanic work of the Antichrist and his displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Now, I do believe also that Satan is the one behind, if you've seen this lately, all this whole new craze and and fascination with UFOs. You know, back in July, there was a House Oversight Subcommittee meeting. They had a special hearing specifically on UFOs. And they heard mystifying testimony about these unexplained objects, you know, these sightings. In fact, the Wall Street Journal pointed out and reported that according to U.S. intelligence reports, UFO sightings have increased in the past two years. I read a recent interview 
that was done by a pastor with an expert on these matters, Christian astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, who was asked if he believed these sightings were actually UFOs and if there was, this was evidence of, on life on other planets. And I like what he said. He says, I can tell you that about 99% of what people report to me as UFOs are phenomena that are naturally explained. They're hoaxes or secret military activity that's going on. When I look at the 1% residual, it has the property of defying the laws of physics, and yet in many cases we can prove that the phenomenon is real We're dealing with a non-physical reality. He goes on. For example, he says, when a UFO is coming through our atmosphere at five to 18,000 miles per hour, the witnesses never report a sonic boom or any evidence of heat friction behind the UFO. He says, if this was a physical craft coming through our atmosphere, you would easily hear sonic booms. And then he adds, with these new reports coming from the Navy and the Air Force, these pilots are seeing UFOs turning sharp right angle corners or acute angles at five to 25,000 miles per hour. No physical object can withstand those G-forces. It would shatter. So we're dealing with a non-physical reality. And then I like this. Then this Christian astrophysicist, Dr. Hughes Ross, says to the pastor interviewing him, you're a pastor. You should be able to figure out what's going on. We're dealing with the fallen angels because that is what fits what the Bible tells us about the motivation of demons. My point is, I believe the devil is behind all of the deception going on in our world today, behind these UFOs. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So we know that's going to be happening. I, just, I believe this is just the beginning of these lying wonders. And it's really just getting people really to, to believe that there are other worlds out there and other life forms and, oh, this isn't satanic, this is real, you know, and just deception. And I think belief in these things really have reached an all-time high so that you would, you would have to think that when the rapture happens, uh, you know, the world's going to, we have the answer. It's aliens. They took them. We're being conditioned. Just think of all the movies that are out there today, the, especially the Marvel movies. They're full of, of gods that are men and women from outer space with superpowers, bringing answers to the hope and hope to a lost world. You have characters, if you're into Marvel, like Thanos, who plays this god that, that can snap his fingers and millions of people just disappear. Why? So there can be a better Earth. Does that not sound like, like the rapture, the explanation to the rapture is going to have? And Marvel's, Marvel movies, you have worlds coming together to defeat who they think is the enemy, which really pictures a battle of Armageddon. My point is this. One of the signs of the times of the last days is there's going to be all sorts of spiritual deception taking place, and Satan's going to be behind it. The world's getting ready for it. Well, Jesus next tells us more of the condition of the world before his return. Look at verse 6. He says, And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus says another sign that you're going to see towards the last days before he returns is there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Now, there have been hot wars. There have been cold wars. We saw the Cold War between Russia and the United States that, that came to an end in 1991. But you know, now it seems just to be picking up all over again. 
We've seen firsthand the war between Russia and Ukraine, nations rising against nations. And there are rumors of even, even more wars and other nations getting involved, and you have threats from China and Russia and Iran, and, and, and it seems like just one rumor of war right after another. Jesus says, don't let that trouble you. The end is not yet. These things must first come to pass. What else does he say will be a sign of the last days? Look at the end of verse 7. He says, there'll be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Third thing we see, that there'll be famines. See, war oftentimes brings famine. It's, it's common news. According to the UN World Food Program, nearly 350 million people around the world are experiencing the most extreme forms of hunger right now. Of those, nearly 49 million people are on the brink of famine. Behind these massive statistics are individual children, women, and men suffering from the dire effects of such severe hunger. It's happening now. Fourth thing, the fourth sign that, that Jesus speaks of is pestilences. That Greek word as translated pestilence implies unusual pestilences, viruses. Jesus says widespread disease, which again could be a result of war, but it also includes pandemics that will occur in the last days. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically predict that we're going to have COVID-19. You can't read it. Turn to page this and you're going to see COVID-19 or age or the Spanish flu. But it does say there will be, like those things, pestilences, deadly plagues. That will be a major issue the closer we get to the Lord's return. Fifth sign that we see that will show us that the Lord's return is near. Jesus says there will be earthquakes in various places. Now we hear all the time of earthquakes that continue to happen. I mean, it's a daily thing. The National Earthquake Information Center now locates about 20,000 earthquakes around the globe each year, or approximately 55 earthquakes a day. But here's what's interesting. According to Polytechnic Institute in Paris, they have been discovering new earthquakes in unexpected places. Places with no record of any seismic activity before. Jesus says when you begin to see earthquakes in various places, places that are not known for earthquakes, know that his return is near. Then Jesus says in verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. At first glance, this seems a strange statement, but recognizing that the Greek word for sorrows is often associated with uh, the idea of, of labor or birth pains. See, we understand uh, Jesus to be indicating that this ongoing series of tragic events would merely be the labor pains leading up to another event. You know, contractions. Many of you moms know what this is like. Ooh, that's a big one. Ooh, that's a big, ooh it's really big. Well, now it's time. In other words, when these things begin to happen, the condition of the world is going to continue just to get worse and worse until Jesus returns. Not get better. We've talked about this before. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And this brings us to our third point, the comparisons. Drop down to verse 37 of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says there, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus says, if you really want to know what it's going to be like before the end of the age, 
Just look back and see how life was during the days of Noah, just prior to the flood, prior to God's judgment uh, against the earth at that time. Keep your place in Matthew 24. We'll be back there uh, shortly. But turn with me now to, to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, because there's some really good comparisons there, great comparisons uh, to the days of Noah and our time today. As you'll note that Noah, uh, uh, like Noah, you and I are end times believers. Noah lived before the flood, we before the flood of fire. Noah spoke of the coming rain, we speak of the coming rain of Jesus Christ. Due to the fact that uh, in Noah's day, men lived long into their eight or nine hundreds, there were probably five to six billion people on the planet just prior to the flood. I mean, could you imagine trying to keep track of how old you were when your birthday was? How old are you? I think I'm in my 600s. I'm not sure. 610, 11, I don't remember. I lost count. But the first thing we compare when we look in Genesis chapter 6 is there's going to be a population explosion. So during the time of Noah, there was probably 5 to 6 billion people on the planet just prior to the flood. It's interesting that according to what's called the world's population clock, Back 100 years ago, we only had a little uh, uh, under 2 billion people in the world. 100 years ago. And now today, and just a, a few than 100 years later, the world population has reached over 8 billion people. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of Jesus' coming. Secondly, as it was in the days of Noah, Genesis 6 verse 4 tells us that there will be abnormal, immoral sexual activity. Look at verse 4 of Genesis 6. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they were born children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Many believe that that phrase, the sons of God, were fallen angels, spirit beings that came to this earth and had sexual relations with the daughters of men and bore children, producing giants in the land. Those children were known as Nephilim, offspring of the, of the, uh, of the sons of God and the daughters of men as a result of abnormal, of abnormal sexual practices going on. Listen, today, we, boy, don't we live in a time of abnormal sexual practices? Listen, things that were unthinkable a generation ago are now commonplace, accepted, promoted. The rise of sexual perversion is at an all-time high. All those things that God calls an abomination, the world has accepted. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, the Lord says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. The Apostle Paul includes lesbianism and the condemnation in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, when he says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Then later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, Paul makes it absolutely clear when he writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. 
You see, all these things that God calls an abomination are happening right now before very eyes, just as this stuff was going on during the days of Noah. Which leads to the third way in which Noah's day is very much like our day today, and that the way the Lord said the word would be when he was ready to return, and that is the wickedness of man was great. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, you have to admit, as you look around the world, we are, we are there. We're getting very close to that description. It's not like, for those of you that are my back in the 70s and 80s, people still had a, a consciousness of God back then. But today, we see the comparison with the days of Noah. The wickedness of man is great. We may say, oh, you know, we're not that bad. I mean, it was really wicked back then. I mean, they were taking their kids and they were putting them on the, offering their kids to sacrifice to the false god Molech and they would heat up the arms of that god and they put a live baby on that and, and, and sacrifice that baby. We wouldn't do that. You know, that according to the National Right to Life, that since Roe versus Wade was enacted, that more than 64 million unborn children had been murdered. That's just in the U.S. alone. That's not even taken into consideration the number of babies that have been murdered in China for the sake of population control or, or the desire to have male children. Hitler, Hitler had nothing on us. He, I mean, he only murdered six million Jews. And yes, we are so thankful that Roe versus Wade finally was federally reversed as an answer to many, many, many years of prayer. But that just means it's left now to the states. So we need to keep praying when it comes to that. So now, presently, like during Noah's day, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And, verse 5 says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about what that's saying. The thoughts that people had in their hearts and in their minds were continually thinking about and doing evil things. The thoughts of greed and, and covetousness and lust and adultery and anger and vengeance and immorality and fornication. All this was on their mind 24-7. But it just wasn't their thought life. Because the fourth thing we read about, we find, is, is violence. Drop down to, to verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6. We read, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Think about the, the sexual violence that we have in our world today. The human sex trafficking that takes place every single day. With an estimated 27.6 million victims worldwide at any given time. And it's predominantly child sex trafficking. But there's violence associated with that. You know, Jesus also said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, that, that one of the signs of the times to look for would be as it was also in the days of Lot, not just Noah. I mean, you think about that, if you recall Genesis chapter 19, when the angels came to warn Lot to flee because judgment was coming, that night the men of Sodom surrounded Lot's house, demanded that Lot bring out the angel messengers to them so that they can have sex with them. Lot refused, and the men of Sodom got violent. It says in Genesis 19, 9-11, that the men shouted, speaking to Lot, Stand back! This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged towards Lot to break down the door. 
But the two angels reached out, pulled light into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Now, I always thought that we weren't really that close to the last days because we haven't really seen the violence associated with with the sexual immorality like in the days of Lot. But let me tell you, we are right there. The violence that is happening now associated with the transgender movement in the U.S. is proof. A few months back, commentator and talk show host uh, Tucker Carlson made this statement. And when I read it, it really caused me to think just how true it is that we're living in the days of Lot. Listen to this. He writes this. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything, and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face if they are sinful and helpless and basically and basically absurd. They are not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me goes the most famous Christian hymn written in English. He goes on. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we are born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers that believe God alone possesses. That unwillingness to agree, that failure to acknowledge a trans person's dominion over nature incites and outrages some in the trans community. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. So Christianity and transgender orthodoxy are wholly incompatible theologies. They can never be reconciled. They are on a collision course with each other. One side is likely to draw blood before the other side. End quote. And there has been blood drawn. We know that. Violence. I think of the six people, the three children and the three adults that were killed back in March at a private Christian school just south of Nashville. Responsible for this horrific act was a 28-year-old woman transitioning to a man. Now, I read that according to the National Library of Medicine, doctors have warned that there is an increase of aggression in women who are transitioning to men because of taking the hormone testosterone treatments. It causes uncontrolled violence because a a woman's body wasn't designed for it. Again, Jesus warned that in the end times, it would become as the days of Noah. It would become as the days of Lot. And all we have to do is look around and see the violence, the sexual immorality, the population explosion, the wickedness of man. And again, verse 5, how every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Listen, that verse alone should be a warning to all of us as believers that we need to protect our minds because it's the realm of the mind that sin starts. Again, we live in a society that is completely obsessed with sexual immorality. You, You can't avoid exposure to sexual advertising. Advertisers, they use it. They, they promote it to just, to, to just, they, they use it to promote just about everything under the sun. We're bombarded with it. TV shows, commercials, movies that pervert sex away from God's intended design and put sinful ideas and images into unsuspected, unguarded minds. And let me tell you, it is affecting the church. I've had people ask me, why don't we see the power of God moving in our churches anymore? And I believe part of the reason is we have impure impurity in our hearts. God cannot use a polluted vessel. There are secret sins people are caught up in today that are crippling the effectiveness of the church. 
We're not as effective as we once were because of the lack of holiness in our hearts and in our minds. So how can we keep our minds pure in such an immoral world? How can we keep our minds pure from the nonstop bombardment of evil and sexual immorality that's in the world today? The answer is found, obviously, in God's Word. Psalm 119. You spend time in God's Word. Are you struggling with, with impure thoughts? Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commands. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your love for the Lord, your love for God's word and the being in God's words keeps our mind clean, keeps our hearts pure. David also took it a step further and he writes this in Psalm 101, verse 3. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. I will not even make any provision for my flesh at all. I'm not going to have this go before my eyes. Paul also tells us how we can keep our minds pure from this nonstop bombardment of evil and morality in the world today. He says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. He says, which is your reasonable service. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, fill your mind with the things of God, not the things of this world. Spend time in God's Word. See, in a world where this wickedness of man is so great, the only weapon against it is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Galatians 5, let's walk in the Spirit will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because, again, what is restraining the world right now from, from complete evil breaking forth is the Holy Spirit working in the lives and through the lives of, of us as believers. But if the life of the believer is no different than the life of those in this world, then what kind of impact can we really expect to have in this world? That's why Jesus said it would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot in his last days, so that we would know uh, to remain faithful despite the changing atmosphere and the, the environment and culture around us. That we'll be not conformed to this world. They will be in the world, but not of the world. Because, listen, folks, the world is going to get worse, a lot worse, before it gets better. One more comparison I want to make before we close. Turn back with me now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, and then drop down to verse 38 and Jesus points out that in the days of Noah, they were totally oblivious to the coming judgment of God. Look at verse 38. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, drinking, (laughs) drinking, (laughs) marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Before the flood, they were just going on business as usual, not aware that the whole system was about to go down beneath the waters of the great flood. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah went into the ark. How little does our world today realize how close we are 
to the day of God's wrath and judgment. And what America needs more than anything else today is a spiritual awakening. Without it, I believe our nation's through. We need to realize that we need to start teaching biblical morality in our public schools. That's the only true basis for morality at all. We need to elect, we need to vote and elect uh, men and women in our Congress and our Senate and our school boards who love God and fear God. We need to continue to show up at city council meetings and school board meetings and stand up and speak out against the evil that is in the world presently while we still can. And we need to, as God's people, humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. But most of all, we need to look for Jesus Christ to return in the clouds with great glory and establish His kingdom on the whole earth. I can't wait for that day. We're going we're gonna to look at this next time when we look at the great tribulation and Jesus' return to the earth. But finally, I want to close with this. It's Jesus' words found in verses 42 through 46 of chapter 24. Because these words apply to all of us. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Then he goes on, verses 43 through 46. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Now, there are three things that Jesus says that we are told to do in light of his coming. Then we'll close. Watch, verse 42. Be ready, verse 44. And be faithful in verse 45. Be watchful. Be ready and be faithful. Watchful first. He says, be watchful. Jesus is using the image of a thief and teaching us watchfulness. Now, it's interesting that, that the coming of Christ is likened to a thief. We looked at that recently in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. See, Jesus is coming as a thief to catch the world unaware. But for us as a church, we know that he's coming to get us. I mean, you don't have thieves call you up one evening and let you know that they're going to burglarize your home, right? They don't call up and say, Mr. Humphrey, yes, I'll be in your neighborhood on the end of August and I'm going to burglarize your home between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Could you please leave the light on for me? I've got to be able to see. I mean, if they informed you the day and the hour and the time in which they would rob your house, you'd be waiting in the bushes for them. I mean, you'd have your baseball bat, your 44 Magnum, your pet pit bull, your, all the police you can muster up. Go ahead, show up. I dare you. But you see, that's the thing. You don't know when a thief is going to strike. They're going to hit without any warnings and you're caught off guard. Jesus is teaching there that the world will be caught unaware, caught off guard, but not us. We need to be watchful. In that sense, we need to have our Arlo's on, you know, our security cameras, watching and waiting for Jesus to return. Next thing that, that Jesus says we also have to be doing in light of his return, he says to be ready in verse 44. Have you ever had an appointment and you didn't want to be late? And all of a sudden you looked at your watch and you go, oh no, I'm late. Why? Because you got distracted. 
Because you're married. No, no, that's not it. (laughs) You weren't paying attention to the time. You weren't getting ready to go. That's the idea that we have. Jesus wants us to pay attention to the time we're living in and to know that he could come back at any moment for his church. So be ready. Now the Lord does know us so well. And, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why he doesn't tell us exactly the day and the hour of his return. He just tells us to be ready. Because if he did, he knows that we would wait to the last minute to get ready. Like so, ladies, like so many of your husbands do before you go out. Here the Lord says, I'm going to come again. And we say, great, you tell me the day and the hour so I can goof off until you get here. Then about an hour before I know you get her, I'll get right with you. Then I'll be ready. But you see, if the Lord just says, I'm coming and no one knows the day or the hour, then what do we have to do? Be watchful. We have to be ready. But more importantly, Jesus says this in verse 44, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I know that the context here is dealing with Christ's second coming, but it can also apply to the rapture. We should be living in light that Jesus could come for a church at any time. I mean, all through the New Testament, we read things like, let us cast off the works of darkness. Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. We're to walk in holiness and sobriety and putting on the helmet and the breastplate of the armor of God and, and live a vigilant life. The Lord is coming. And there is that exhortation for us as a church to be watchful and to be ready, even though the context here is for the Jewish people living during the tribulation period to be watchful for a second coming. We need to be ready for the rapture. And that brings us to the third thing, the third image here in verse 45. We need to be faithful. Look at verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? We need to realize that we are stewards over all that God has given to us. Your money, every penny of it. Not just 10%, it all belongs to God. Your house belongs to God. Your children belong to God. Your clothes belong to God. Your car belongs to God. You may say, God, you need a new car. But, but, but even still, <laughs> everything belongs to God, including your time left on this earth. Your life belongs to God. What are you doing with it? As Pastor Chuck Smith had said, you have only one life and it will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. When we as Christians are caught up to be with, with Christ, we will stand before him and that's it. We're done. We're done earning our rewards for heaven. We're done with our work here on this earth. It'll there, there that we'll be given our reward for, for our works in heaven. It's called the Bema Seat. It's a reward seat. And faithfulness in a little, Jesus says, will lead to more responsibility and greater blessings and privileges in eternity. But we're running out of time, folks. Paul said in Romans thirteen twelve, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let's put on the armor of life. So if you are a person who wants to be ready for the coming of the Lord, you need to be watchful, you need to be ready, and most of all, you need to remain faithful. We need to be about our Father's business, living godly lives, wholly set apart for the Lord. Let me put it another way. If Jesus were to come back today, is there anything that you're doing presently that you would be ashamed to be doing should he return? You know, we all have bosses out there. We've had bosses out there. And you know that when the boss shows up to work, people tend to work a little bit harder, right? 
Hey, look busy. Why? Because the boss is in the office, so everybody gets busy. And you start typing away on the keyboard even though you don't know how to type. But it looks like you do, you know. It's the boss. Maybe you're on the construction side and you pick up that hammer and start hitting things. <laughs> Anything, just to look busy. The boss is here. And then the boss kind of checks things out and he walks up the side and leaves the office and everyone goes back to what they're doing before. Nothing but staring at their phones and then playing games on it. Listen, Jesus is coming. We need to quit staring at our phones and playing games and get busy. We should be out there and in here uh, serving him any way that we can with the gifts he's given to us. Be watchful, be ready, be faithful, knowing Jesus could return at any moment. And live in anticipation of that. Are you ready for Christ's return? The signs are all there, the signs of the times. So as we close, our theme for our verse for this whole series, Second Peter one nineteen, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Or as Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. One final question. If Jesus were to come back for his church, say this evening at 6 p.m., I'm not date setting, would you be ready? I'm not saying he will. I'm just saying if he did, would you be uh, ready to go? Or would you be left behind to face what we're going to look at next week, the great tribulation? Listen, I don't want any of you to be left behind to face that. Jesus says to your heart this morning, Behold, I stand at the door and, and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. In other words, he's, he's knocking on the door of your life and saying, Let me forgive you of your sin. Let me make you a new creation. Let me take away all that guilt and shame and sin away and give you new life, abundant life, eternal life. But you've got to open the door. You know, the doorknob is on the inside, as it's been said. You've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and allow, uh, who allowed mankind to put him to death for your sin, for my sin. But death could not hold him. He rose from the dead three days later to prove, in fact, that he paid the penalty for your sin. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in him and you'll be forgiven. So if you've never cried out to God to save you, uh, I, I want you to do so this morning. Don't wait another moment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming back for us, and we do believe it's very soon. Lord, we see the signs. We see the labor pains that tell us that your return is near. So, Lord, help us as your church to not be caught unprepared. unprepared. Lord, help us to be watchful, to be ready, to be faithful to do that which you've called us to do. And finally, Lord, we pray for any person listening to this message online or any person that's that's in this room right now that that does not know you, Lord, that they would see their need for you, that you would uh, help them get right with you, help them to be ready to go. Well, head to bow and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here that you, you would say today, Tom, I'm not sure if I'm ready for the Lord's return. I can't say with confidence that if Jesus were to come back, I know I would, I would go to heaven, but I want to be sure. I want to be ready for his return. I want to go, go to heaven. Pray for me. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? It's just between you and the Lord. I need to be saved today. I need my sin forgiven. I need to know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. Just raise it up so I can pray for you. 
God bless you. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. You want to get right with God. You want the Lord to forgive you your sin. For the one that raised his hand and, and anybody else, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, just repeat this prayer after me. Just a prayer of, of, of committing your life to Christ, asking for that forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me. You paid the price for my sin. So I ask you to forgive me now. I put my faith and trust in you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. Lord, make me ready for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the